Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week... I mean, as humans, of course, we long to be physically present, you know, with each other, with things we love, with places we love. And we've really been suffering in that kind of emotional level and that kind of maybe less urgently at the level of just pleasure and joy in that physical, tactile, sensory experience. But there is technology that's continuing to emerge that reduce the impact of that physical distance through allowing me to feel like I'm in another space. Mm-hmm. Neil Redding is founder and CEO of Redding Futures, a boutique consultancy that enables brands and businesses to engage powerfully with the near future. His rare multidisciplinary perspective draws on the craft of software engineering, the art of brand narrative and expression, and the practice of digital physical experience strategy. Prior to founding Reading Futures, Neil held leadership roles at Mediacom, Proximity BBDO, Gensler, ThoughtWorks, and Lab49. Neil, you are live on the Tech Humanist Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Kate, thank you so much for inviting me. It's fantastic to be here and great to see you again. Yeah. Across a little bit of distance. A little across a little bit of distance. Normally, you know, normally Neil and I get together and have uh, coffee at maybe La Pan Quotidien in uh, the Columbus Circle. True. But we haven't been able to do that anyway <laughs> this year. So Are they closed now? I think they are, right? Yeah, so I think there was like a bankruptcy thing with the company that owns or with, with Le Pan Quotidien and then I think they actually yeah. liquidated the American holdings and another company bought them. Yeah. So yeah. there's the some scoop on deal. LPQ. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be able to go back to our coffee spot at some <laughs> point. But right now, uh, you are in Lisbon, right? It's true. I'm in Lisbon. Yeah. And I, I think when you mentioned Portuguese pastries, I think the first thing I Instagrammed when I got to Lisbon a little less than two weeks ago was a pastel de nata, which is this Portuguese egg custard pastry. And yeah. I think you were like, first things first, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, <laughs> you, you got to do, you know, you got to have your priorities. Uh, Absolutely. On the top of your list. When you get somewhere, I mean, yeah, and we've been here before uh, once and yeah, it's, they are super delicious. So yeah, so yeah. Uh, I think I mention this like every week that I'm vegan. So it was funny for me when I was in Lisbon because I had seen a lot of sort of um, promotion about those pastries going when I was heading to Lisbon. And I was like, oh, it's going to be a bummer not to be able to to find them. Maybe there will be a vegan equivalent. And I found like four different versions that were vegan. Yeah. I tried them all. <laughs> They were so good. Yeah, you know it's funny. They're actually it's an um, it's amazing. There's a lot of vegan cuisine here too. There really is. Last night we went to a Nepalese restaurant that had a whole separate vegan menu, and the guy who runs it was was very excitedly promoting it to us, even though we weren't ordering from it. Oh, very cool. Let your vegan friends know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and you just did. I did. So and now you traveled to Lisbon. What you said like two weeks ago. A little right? under two weeks. Yeah. And you're wondering and, how, right? Yeah, yeah. How I was just going to say, I, I, you and I have already chatted since then, and I kind of got the lowdown. But is there any aspect of the story you would be willing to share with our viewers and listeners? You know, um, I feel a little bit guilty, you know, because like plenty of New York friends, just American friends, just like, I'm so jealous. Like, how did you do that? Well, I, it goes back to being born to an Irish citizen mom. And so I inherited that citizenship, which is EU citizenship, which allows uh, myself and my close family, including my wife, to be exempt from the current travel ban from the U.S. So that was really the main reason. And I also have work here that um, I had a letter from a company that I'm working with here. So, But it turns out the work wasn't even required. So 
it's kind of the citizenship thing. So, so it was without incident? It was pretty much without incident. It was shockingly without incident, actually. True. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, the Delta folks at JFK made sure that I was an EU citizen and that Kylan was traveling with me as my wife. And we had to show a marriage certificate, et cetera. But then in, in France and Paris, Charles de Gaulle, like, they literally didn't care at all. They didn't say anything. They just said, go ahead. And then we got to Lisbon and they didn't even talk to us. They didn't see a border. <laughs> so it was kind of weird. And, you know, today, given like just today, there are new restrictions, right? right. I mean, in, in the news in Portugal in, as well in as Lisbon France. In Portugal? And, okay. and, yeah. So, I mean, not heavy restrictions, but, you know, just limiting indoor capacity, limiting mm-hmm. the number of people that can gather outside of certain kinds of gatherings and so on. But, um, yeah, hopefully Portugal is still going to be chill about all of this. I mean, they've been doing really well relative to the rest of Europe. I think a lot of it is people are outside and the weather's still warm, you know, so it, yeah. it makes a big difference in terms of safety. And But yeah, now masks are required everywhere. So anyway, my point is just that we got in almost two weeks ago. If we came now or next week, maybe we wouldn't. I don't know. I had seen the the, the uh, curfew in Paris, but I hadn't seen any, any announcement about what was happening in, in Portugal. So... Yeah, hopefully you it's, don't it's usually on these roundups right. because Portugal is like too small to be mentioned on these lists, which is kind of a bonus, you know, when you're <laughs> when you're trying to travel. It's like they just they're they're too small to be too concerned about. Well, I hope it stays a, a good experience for you. Thank you. Well, let's get into into your work. You know, you actually mentioned that you know you're there to do some work. So it seems like what's what's interesting to me is you know you describe yourself or your work is as a near futurist. So why do you call yourself that? First of all, yeah. It's a good question. I mean, um, a few things. One is that it's a term that's not used. And I think, you know, (laughs) near future, whenever I've used the term, I started using it um, most of a year ago to talk about, you know, I created this publication, Near Future of Retail, with a good friend of mine, Tony Parisi, who runs AR VR brand strategy at Unity. And so we are um, looking at how technology is, is advancing retail and that publication. But in that context, I started to realize that near future, as distinct from, you know, the the sort of indefinite future or futurism, which I, I think is also tied or, or uh, about projecting the indefinite future, near futurism or the near future is distinct, you know, in the way I think about it in the sense that it's, you know, a little bit arbitrarily, we say the next three to five years. I mean, now during COVID, it feels like that's a <laughs> yeah. really far horizon, it is. right? <laughs> yeah. but, Right. Like no one can think. I mean, when COVID first hit, I think people were just like, I can't even think about the next three to five hours mm-hmm. or days, you know, but mm-hmm. um, but it feels, you know, from a technology perspective, I mean, you and I, I think understand this, that that we can see based on what's emerging now, what can emerge, you know, plausibly over the next three to five years. And so therefore, the near future is an actionable time frame, which as a technologist and someone who, you know, as you described earlier, kind of grew up through software engineering I care a lot about building things and making tangible impact, you know, creating things that have functional value and utility. And so it's kind of near futurism is really about bridging the the sort of more distant, more visionary futurism with what can uh, be actionable today, you know, for brands and businesses. Well, do you find yourself, you mentioned building things. Do you find yourself with the opportunity to to build very often these days? I think of you as mostly doing a lot of consulting. Is that is that um, true of, of the work that you're doing or are you finding an opportunity to keep your hand in? 
really both. I mean, so yes, primarily at this point, um, although I did kind of grow up professionally doing software engineering and then custom software consulting, you know, I've really gradually transitioned into more creative strategic leadership and, and yeah. uh, those kinds of roles and working more with senior executives at clients, you know, and so at that level, there's more vision and strategy and kind of strategic framing of mm-hmm. the upcoming months and years, you know, of a, of a brand or business. But I do, you know, inevitably continue to prototype to understand new APIs and new technologies. You know, I don't code for production anymore is, is the way I describe it. But I, in order to understand certain kinds of technology capabilities, it's important, I think, to continue to have my hands in it. You yeah. Know? So, so I do play with things, you know, on the nights and weekends, you know, just to understand them. And I also have, I'm close friends with a lot of, you know, amazing software engineers and developers. So I kind of leverage them, shall we say, you know, to kind of stay on top of topics that I don't have time to kind of explore directly myself. So yeah, that's relatable. That feels like to me, that's been most of the way that I've kept uh, abreast of what's going on with different changes in the market. And I didn't mean any slight against consultants, obviously, since I am one myself. But I just wondered, you also mentioned strategy during your, your answer. And that made me wonder, you know, how do you conceive of the difference between futurism and strategy or near futurism and strategy? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think strategy can be applied. I mean, it's a very broad concept, right? Yeah. So like I've, I've worked with in a, how would I say, in creative agencies or ad agencies, strategy is thought of differently than it is at, say, Gensler, where I led digital experience design. They have strategists there that are focused on the built environment, which I know you share a lot of interest in that. Mm-hmm. Strategy, you know, and then there's business strategy that C-suite, you know, and boards of directors engage in, you know, at the business level. But um, I think near futurism as a practice, which is really something I'm kind of evolving and and figuring out, to be honest, you know, is about strategy for a, a slightly longer timeline than just the current moment. Right. So, for example, if you do strategy for an ad campaign or you do, you know, brand strategy for, you know, a rebranding or positioning a brand or business for the coming for, for the current moment, right? Mm-hmm. You'll you're gonna look at what's the current state of the market, you know, what are customer and demographic kind of sentiments and trends, you know, at the moment. It's very momentary, I think, generally, right? Whereas the kind of strategy that I would call near futurism that we build into our near future framework as a strategic framework and road mapping tool is focused on that coming few years, you know, so it really looks at the trajectories of change that as we currently understand them, both emerging technology, but also shifts in business model shifts in uh, sort of disruption in certain marketplaces, certain industries, like for clients that we work for, and then even cultural shifts and, and sometimes even geopolitical shifts. I mean, there's just so much change happening right now. And all mm-hmm. these things really need to be taken into account when you're doing near future work. You know, that's, that's our stance. And so Whereas strategy can really just be, this is the current state of the market that we're focused on. Near future strategy is just looking at a slightly longer, you know, three to five year time horizon. And you mentioned the near future framework, which I know is uh, your concept, you know, your framework that you've created. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Yeah. So essentially what it is, is, as I started to say, is a, a minimum viable strategic framework, if you will, you know, using that, I don't know if it's like MVSF or something. <laughs> I'm just thinking aloud here, like, what would the acronym be? That's probably a bad acronym. But like, um, the idea is that, you know, I mean, and, and you know, when you're 
mentioning strategy a second ago, I was thinking about how I've, I've heard from a number of people recently, like strategy is scary to many clients right now, because if you're interested, if you're an executive looking for help from, from a consultancy or from a service provider, generally you're dealing like your house is on fire or you're dealing with (laughs) urgent panic level kinds of situations right now, you know, thanks to COVID, thanks to just all the shifts that are happening. Mm -hmm. And so strategy sounds like a nice to have, I think in many ways, you know, at the current moment, but the good news, I mean, from my perspective, from our perspective is that the near future framework is meant to be just the minimum amount of kind of strategic framing, like a a framing, which is a way of understanding, again, these trajectories of change that are emerging now and sort of where we see them going over the coming few years or however far we decide to project. The minimum amount of that that allows for effective action. And by action here, I mean coming up with hypotheses where the hypothesis would look something like, you know, if we did X or if we built X, we would expect business benefit Y or customer benefit Z or whatever those, you know, how would we articulate that? And these hypotheses are structured and articulated in ways that they can then be tested, Mm -hmm. right? Either via building a prototype and putting that in some limited market test or sometimes even just via market research. So the point is that this near future framework creates a set of hypotheses and a way of relating to those hypotheses that is biased towards taking action, right? Rather than spending many months creating some beautiful 200 page vision deck, you know, or, a, you know, a strategy for the future of a business, which don't get me wrong, like there's, there's plenty of value in that in terms of like getting senior leadership at a brand or business aligned and on the same page. But I've heard so many times from clients over the years that that kind of result is just not actionable. It can't be translated easily or sometimes even at all into actual like practical business value. So really what we're trying to do with Near Future Framework is fill that white space that we see in the market between that seven figure 200 page vision deck, you know, and <laughs> and just sort of tactical flailing, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, right? right. We want there to be some minimal strategic framing and a shared understanding of why we're building what we're building and how to fit, how we see that as fitting into what's emerging over the next few years. And then the last piece of it is and we're still working this out, actually, we want to have court, at least quarterly, maybe even monthly, given the level of volatility in so many dimensions right now, meeting and recalibration of each of the plans, you know, that we create each of these hypotheses that we work with for clients so that we can continually test the results and sort of put ourselves with the client on the hook to revisit and then recalibrate how we're sort of in market, so to speak, right, with these prototypes and these tests and as quickly as possible, actually deployed sort of production value, you know, sort of business, creating business value for our clients. Does that make sense? So, I mean, it's essentially that that minimum framing that allows everybody to understand, like, here's what we're doing and here's why. And then we continually meet, you know, quarterly or monthly to recalibrate. All right. So MVSF it is, or until until a better know. acronym what do you comes think of along. This? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the minimum viable framework or something, MVF, I don't know. We'll work on it. We'll workshop it. We can do it. (laughs) Okay. Hey, uh, I know that a lot of your work, uh, at least your recent work, has focused on retail and the the near future of retail. So I'm wondering what it is about retail that intrigues you and why has it become the center of a lot of your work? Yeah, it's a great question. In some ways, I 
just sort of not, not fell into it, but just sort of like gradually moved in this direction. You know, after I decided I didn't want to code all the time uh, for production environments or just be f- full on a software engineer, I spent some time in advertising. I think, as I mentioned, doing creative tech and strategy work. And yeah, you, you know, talked about 200 at, page strategy text. You sort of tipped yeah, your hand there that you've worked in an agency environment. <laughs> yeah, or like I'm also you know referring to like amazing firms like. IDO or McKinsey or Accenture, you know, that will do these huge, you know, heavy visioning kind of engagements. Um, But sure, I mean, certainly ad agencies can put together, you know, long, many slide decks as well. No, so I mean, in the agency world, right, there's so many brands that have retail presence that are very consumer focused. And so a number of years there and then spending time running digital experience design at Gensler, actually, where we did a lot of work specifically for retail clients that had physical spaces, I just sort of gradually became more and more interested in it. And then I wondered at some point reflected, you know, on the question you're asking now, which is why, like what, what is so interesting about retail? And I, I'm really clear and I get more clear all the time that when you look at everything that has to do with buying and selling of things like things, good services, it's so closely tied with what we care about most, like what we value most value enough as humans to spend our hard earned money on, Mm -hmm. right. Or to go out of our way to procure. And so it really reflects, I mean, the realm of retail reflects um, something really deeply human and profoundly human, you know, and we spend more and more of our time, I think, in context that we are apparently willing to have commercialized, right? Like all of our social media interaction is becoming colonized by opportunities to buy and prompts to buy things that, you know, Facebook or Twitter or, you know, wherever else thinks we're going to like and want to buy, you know, so there's this suffusion of commercial transaction or at least discovery of goods that can be bought and sold, you know, into these moments of our daily lives, you know, so all of that increasingly deep integration of commerce and buying and selling of things into our self-expression, into our communication is I mean, there are definitely downsides to it, you know, and I I feel like it'd be nice to just have uh, social media sometimes that isn't colonized by all of that uh, commercial interactivity. But it also means that and it works because what we care about and what we are willing to buy and are interested in buying are so intertwined, right? They're kind of the same thing at some deep level. Yeah, it's like a proxy for what's meaningful to us. Yeah. Yeah, it is. On some right? level, right? Not everything, obviously. Like we have to buy Certainly things that, that are necessary. But but the things that we spend, especially our discretionary income on, it seems like that you could yes. certainly think of as as proxies for meaning. You know, you've written um, this, about this and you have a, a great piece on the near future of retail on Medium, right, is, is where that platform is hosted. Right. Um, and there's yeah. a there's an excerpt of one of your uh, pieces. I think this is your your TLDR on the the near mm-hmm. future of retail, where you wrote what we used to call shopping is diversifying and becoming f- suffused into who we are and how we live. Less something external, intentional, and task oriented. More essential and omnipresent <clears throat> in our moment to moment lives. This is partly due to the growth of materialism in the second half of the 20th century through today, and yet it's much deeper and broader than this. So a sort of similar sentiment to what you just expressed, but I wonder, could you unpack right. that a little bit more for us? Because I think you were talking about some other forces in that in that piece as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was kind of the, I mean, as the TLDR, it was kind of the, I don't know, not quite a manifesto, but like <laughs> sort of the the framing of sort of why Tony and I wanted to create this publication in the first place is that we saw these, this at the fundamental level, 
all the elements that make up retail broadly, you know, like how we discover products, goods and services, how they get made, how they get presented to us, what are the contexts in which we can discover them or purchase them or share them, whether or not we need to go physically to a, a store to try them out or whether we can experience them in some way without visiting a store. And, and then even the payment and fulfillment process, like all of these different elements that make up the sort of end-to-end, you might say, set of retail journeys are being almost kind of deconstructed and reconstructed into different business models by different brands and so on. So there's a lot happening there. The materialism piece in the second half of the 20th century, I just mean like like I was saying earlier, I think there's a there's an apparent willingness or comfort level, maybe especially in America, right, as you and I know, mm-hmm. with with the commercialization of almost every context in our lives, right? In our lifetime, like we've seen every day, almost every hour of every day, you know, stores are open, promotions are happening, you know, we're being marketed to, we're being advertised to, we can expect to go shopping. You know what I mean? I mean, Mm -hmm. this is, you know, certainly pre-COVID, but I think even during COVID, I mean, it's just all been uh, completely digital, right? And then again, Instagram is sort of my go-to example where almost all of us, right, have experienced this uncanny presentation to us of something that we can buy that's like so closely tied to something. I mean, it's like, how did you know that this is what I wanted? You know, I do want this. And so, people, you know, myself and and even more than, than me, people close to me, I've just said, wow, I just I just keep buying this stuff that gets presented to me on Instagram that I never heard of before, but I, I it gets pushed to me. It's like, yeah, it's so easy. And it's so aligned with what I already want. So And you so know what, what's all, interesting to me about that is yeah. that that you know, so often people assume that and I think there's this big discussion about whether the devices are listening and whether the audio that's happening from, you know, the the picking up on our conversations is being used in targeting in advertising, and that's you know certainly a question that could be debated. Uh, but one of the one of the arguments that people who are adamantly saying no, that data is not being used, one of the arguments they make is you're more predictable than you think. <laughs> like <clears throat> your data points of yes. your preferences and your behaviors form a much more predictable model than you could yes. possibly imagine, and right. that that seems like it's true when you see. Just how many kinds of yes. similar products are being pushed to you that you never heard of before in you know advertising platforms like Instagram, as you say. It's it's true, yeah. No, I mean just like what was it like for your home companion? I think Garrison Keeler always used to say, you know, all the children are above average, right, in this town. <laughs> it's like we all think we're above average. We all think that we're capricious and unpredictable and how could they know what I wanted well it's like it's as you're saying it's actually way we're way more predictable we have way less aberrant behavior than we think right we actually yeah. so it's actually not that hard yeah to figure not out. to say that it's impossible that that audio is being used <laughs> collected and targeted but that's not necessary I think in this no, I know do you framework. find do you find it I mean do you feel like it probably is right even though there's denial across the board from the big from big tech, right? I mean, everybody I mean, has their a- anecdote, right? Everybody has a story. You can start a conversation at a cocktail party with just asking that question, like, when was the? <laughs> what's the story you yes. have about when you thought your phone was listening to you? <laughs> like mm-hmm. everybody has a story, so mm-hmm. there it feels like 
if it's not true that, you know, if that data is not being used, then we just have a very interesting psychological sort of sociological statement being made there <laughs> with the way right. we all constantly feel yes. that. But it's so interesting not to keep derailing this subject, but it's also interesting mm-hmm. to me that, that that's the kind of surveillance that everybody gets you know, upset about as opposed to the constant facial recognition and other kinds of data surveillance that's happening all the time, everywhere, in every channel and every part of our lives. But it's the audio, it's like, that's the betrayal. It's like our phone is listening to us and serving us ads or helping to serve us ads. And I won't have it. (laughs) No, it is interesting. I mean, I think Deloitte published a a report a few years ago that basically clarified that overwhelmingly for humans, at least, and again, this is probably mostly in the States, but like privacy and avoiding being surveilled is a, a high priority unless there's some perceivable benefit, right, that I'm mm-hmm. receiving. And the benefit doesn't have to be big at all. It can be really, really small. And then I'm like, sure, you know, like you can watch what I'm doing and personalize my experience or like make me targeted offers, right? Like people are constantly and have been for decades, you know, signing up for to receive offers, coupons, whatever, whatever. Right. And so it's interesting. Yeah. As you said, I mean, I think the, maybe people are upset about the possibility of eavesdropping, right? Like digitally because they don't feel like it's directly, it's just not part of the deal consciously, right? Like it's, it's not directly being translated in a way that's, that is overt, right? If they said, Hey, we're going to listen to what you talk about and then offer you, you know, targeted deals based on what you talk about. People might be like, okay, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, so okay, that's a clear benefit, right? That's maybe, a really good work. segue back into your work though, because I think one of the points that, you know, that excerpt that I read that you were talking about, that one of the points that it seems like you're making and you make often, I think on LinkedIn in a lot of your commentary is that, shopping is so much more ambient than it has ever been and it will continue to become more ambient right so so it's it is the sense that if people made that explicit agreement like hey your phone's gonna listen to you and it's gonna make shopping recommendations to you is that okay and i do think you're right that most people would be like a okay i totally want that i want (laughs) i want to know like what are these arcane things that i'm going to get recommended that are going to be on the nose right but what are some of the other ways that you're observing where that ambient shopping and, and commerce experience is playing out. Sure. Yeah, I mean, so I think the some of the most relatable examples have to do with the majority of households in the U.S. anyway are Amazon Prime subscribers, right? So, so almost all of us, I think it's fair to say, have this experience of spending less and less time to get more and more mm-hmm. thanks to Amazon Prime, right? I mean, we certainly, in New York, you know, certainly in the middle of the pandemic, I mean, there was a couple of weeks where we couldn't like get delivery slots for anything, mm-hmm. you know, from Whole Foods via Amazon or like we couldn't order anything that wasn't essential, you know, from Amazon. But after a few weeks, they kind of got that sorted out. I spend so much less time shopping across the board than I did before I was able to get, all, you know, certainly groceries from Amazon and then but also kind of almost everything else that I frankly like get from Amazon, you know, it's just, it takes so little time. And of course, Amazon is pushing wherever it can for me to subscribe and they make it very easy to unsubscribe. So it's like, it's, you know, what they're trying to do and Scott Galloway coined a term for something that I've been talking about for a while, you know, he's great at coining these terms, 
zero click ordering, right? He was referencing the fact that Amazon, I think patented actually, but certainly introduced one click ordering some many, mm -hmm. many years ago. And that was a huge innovation at the time. And they've been pushing towards zero fulfillment, right? Zero fulfillment time, basically, right? Two day, one day, next day, two hours, whatever. The point being, they're trying to just remove shopping as an explicit activity from your life, right? And, and I'm just saying, reporting from my own life, I spend very little time actually shopping and I get a lot more kind of, I don't know if I get more stuff, but like maybe I, I probably do. I get more stuff. Yeah, so, I would say I do. Um, Subscribe and save is a big feature in our yeah. house. <laughs> yes, for sure. So, I mean, it's not perfect, right? Because you, mm -hmm. you're ideally your inventory would always be exactly at the level that you right. want. And they haven't sorted that out yet exactly. But another example is like I was mentioning earlier, Instagram, where I could see people certainly in our household, you know, we spend less time shopping for certain things because we get pushed these interstitial ads, you know, while we're browsing stories or whatever we're doing mm -hmm. that um, actually are aligned with something that we already wanted. So it makes it super easy and streamlined to buy. So it's just this it could even be a minute, 60, 90 seconds. Does that count as shopping? To me, it just seems like, you know, it was like, oh, we think you need this. Yes, I do. Give it to me. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's right. I mean, so the point is that this feels a bit ambient. Like I didn't go on Instagram. We don't go on Instagram to buy stuff, at least not yet. Maybe some people do, but it's not the primary purpose of it. But it's suffused into that whole experience of sharing our lives, tuning into other people's lives. Just and just sort of being in this community of experience sharing, right? That you might say is what Instagram is, right? As yeah. an example. So yeah, and I think that these are, you know, this is where we are in late 2020, right? And I think that both in terms of fulfillment, you know, I mean, Amazon and Walmart have all have already been like very overtly pushing towards proactively fulfilling, like sending us things that we haven't ordered. We haven't even subscribed to, but just based on the data they have about what we want, they're willing to actually send us something that we'll be like, no, actually, I don't want that. Send it back, you know. And so it's kind of proactive fulfillment based on what we want. So that is even less time. I mean, it's, it's almost negative time spent shopping unless it becomes super annoying and they send you stuff you don't want. But yeah, unless you know it I mean? so tips like it toward are, time spent yes. returning. Right. Exactly. So they've got to sort that out and they've got to get the balance right because you don't want just stuff piling up that you have to, you know, take to your local UPS store or whatever. But yeah, especially since, um, you know, all these exposés about how returned merchandise barely ever makes it back out to anyone. It just ends up in dumps. Right. So we yes. definitely can't have that as a society so for sure. It's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. And so thinking about COVID and commerce too. So obviously, you know, a lot of what the push has been is toward, you know, sort of contactless experiences with food delivery, but also with shopping. But there, there's a lot of uh, integration, obviously, of, of fulfillment systems and, you know, just-in-time ordering and go to the store and pick up and things like that. Are you seeing fulfillment or, you know, are you seeing these kinds of trends happening that were, that you feel like were already on their way and they're just, you know, that's the sort of classic story about digital transformation under COVID is like, you know, we'll get to it, we'll get to it, oh, we better do it, you know, sort of thing? Yes, yeah. Or is it new stuff yeah. that's happening uh, in, in many senses? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think the short answer is yes, it's really an accelerant. And again, I mean, if you listen to Scott Galloway, he's constantly saying this, he's been saying this for months with, with COVID, but it was from my perspective, from the based on the work that I do and have been doing for years, it's it's kind of um, I don't know, it sort of makes me happy. It's sort of or it's good luck or some combination of these things because the reality is that 
nothing qualitatively or very little qualitatively has really changed in terms of what businesses uh, need to do in order to thrive in the context of COVID. And frankly, any context going forward where physical proximity or where physical distance is required or physical proximity is not safe, right? It's dangerous or it's, it's not convenient. So when you say very little has changed in what businesses need to do, you are specifically talking about retail, right? Or are well, you... I think I think generally, I mean, sure. I think retail for sure. I mean, um, restaurants are in a completely different situation, are they not? I think, well, I think they are, but I think what's also true, I mean, they're certainly different in certain ways. I think what's also true, if you look at like what has allowed certain restaurants to stay alive, to stay in business, right, over the past seven months of COVID is using digital technology, mm-hmm. right, to fulfill via delivery services, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's like Uber Eats is huge here in Lisbon, in the in New York, it's more seamless, right, or Grubhub. But I think like those, there are local businesses that I'm sure you know in your neighborhood, right, that are still alive, maybe just barely, right, because the cut's being taken by these delivery services. But like if there wasn't that digital service layer, you know, of order taking and fulfillment and delivery, they wouldn't be able to to stay in business, right? So I mean, it's not like they couldn't do it necessarily without that. But the point is that that push to leverage di- digital technology for logistics and fulfillment and moving physical things around, right? I mean, any business that has physical materials, physical supply chain, you know, if it's not a services business, really, you know, for years, it's been critical and it's it's no less critical, it's more critical now that they're using digital technology, right? And software and hardware and sensors throughout the, the supply chain, the same way as it always has been. You know what I mean? So I th- that's what I'm saying is is not not different. I mean, it's really the same. I think what's what is different, of course, you know, during COVID is this accelerant around, um, as you said, contactless. You know, the danger of being uh, of touching or being physically close to other people or or I don't know, breathing their air. You know, being in dangerous spaces where there's you know tight uh, population of humans, and so. One of the the topics of the way I've been talking about it recently, and I actually gave a little talk yesterday about that I called the end of distance, sort of trying to be a little bit provocative. But I think when one of the dimensions of what's happening here broadly, I mean, not in retail, sure, but but outside retail as well, is that, and it's been building for years, and COVID has just sort of made it more poignant. We want to, I mean, as humans, of course, we long to be physically present, you know, with each other, with things we love, with places we love. And we've really been suffering at that kind of emotional level and that kind of and maybe less urgently at the level of just pleasure and kind of joy in that physical tactile sensory experience. But there is technology that's continuing to emerge. And I think there's you know a lot of companies and, and VCs and, and so on have been doubling down the last six or seven months on technologies that reduce the impact of that physical distance, you know, through allowing me to feel like I'm in another space. Mm -hmm. And examples include, you know, there are a few startups, um, one of which I'm I'm working closely with, that is simulating the showroom for a store. And this is an interesting hypothesis, you know, do do people want to be in a photorealistic version of a showroom that's beautifully merchandised that feels like the bow concept or, you know, some other kind of high-end furniture store. I mean, obviously, this is a little bit urban elite kind of example. But for all of us, for most of us, right, I mean, there are stores that we enjoy being in 
the idea is that you can be in that space, sort of project yourself into that space, almost like people project themselves via an avatar into Fortnite or some kind of gaming scenario, right? And have that experience of being in that space. And then kind of conversely, similar technology, but slightly different, allows us to bring objects digitally in 3D, photorealistically, as we know through augmented reality, kind of bring objects or a simulation of them into our physical space. You know what I mean? So that we can browse them, sort of walk around them, get a sense of of their three dimensions, how they look, how they might Mm -hmm. feel. And we have this kind of visceral reaction to them. But both of these, as well as the sort of trending towards zero fulfillment, kind of collectively make up this 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 trend that it maybe deserves being called a distinct trend, like the end of distance, you know, like how distance is just becoming, since we can't rely on physical proximity anymore, like we need to have our lives go on, right? I think that's our collective stance. How can we be present with the things and people and spaces and places we love at a distance, even partially or even in a even in some kind of simulated way? Yeah, so that was a long I, answer to no, that no, question. No, no, it's great. I, I just want to let you go and go. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what? What I'm thinking about while you're describing that, of course, you know, I I think immersive experiences are terribly exciting. I think you know AR is potentially one of the most exciting technologies that I've ever seen, uh, and is unrealized in its potential yet. But what I think about now, like what the in this stage of COVID, and how it's playing out for me and my surroundings, what I find is I really miss third places. Like I, my home mm-hmm. has become, you know, my apartment has become my home and my workspace. So I have the first and second space sort of taken care of nice. in one. Right. And it also has to be the third space. And I just don't have the room, you know, to have right. like a right. sufficient third space here. And of course, you know, I'm used to being able to go out and like sit in a coffee shop and kind of have that, even if it's not actually interacting with other people, the ambient experience of interacting yeah. with other people. Yeah. And I think the easy thing that, you know, someone might say, well, you know, just go on social media or something like that. But there is something, as you say, about, the, you know, in the example you're giving about bringing an object in, in 3D into an immersive, you know, surround kind of experience. There is something tactile, something kinesthetic, something physical about, and sensory about the way we interact with things that are around us, even if it, potentially even if it's virtual. And so I wonder what you think about that. Like, can we actually, you know, recreate somehow an immersive virtual third space that isn't second life or it isn't, you know, something that's cheesy that that really will give us that fulfilling sense in true end of distance form (laughs) that we can actually, you know, find that fulfillment of the third place. Yeah. I don't think that there is anything like in the in the immediate or even we'll just use the term near future, right? The mm-hmm. next three to five years, I think there's gonna be a lot of innovation in this space. I think the next three to five years, we will see augmented reality glasses, potentially even early augmented reality contact lenses. You mm-hmm. know, there's a company Mojo Vision that's doing this. This is all about, you know, layering digital content, including three-dimensional digital objects right into your physical environment and then eventually sort of snapping this content to the physical environment in a way that it's that is believably realistic, right? And so we're still, although usably AR is usable for many cases now, but it's still early days, as you said. So, but in terms of really getting to the point where we feel like, wow, like I can re- I can relax, I can feel satisfied, I can feel this sense of like, ah, oh, you know, whatever it, you know, exhale, you know, yeah. let's, let's, I'm being with my my friends or I'm having this experience that I don't know, I you know. 
lived in Amsterdam a while ago, and I love that city. And they have this word the Dutch do, gezellig. Which, do you know this word? It's no. like gezellig. It has a guttural at the beginning and the end. Um, and they must love the guttural sound because what it means is this word, it's, people say it's not really translatable into English, but it's like the kind of coziness you feel with your good friends in a candlelit like wood table space when you're like drinking old old gin or like whatever you love, you know, and it's sort of like coziness that you have in a beautifully appointed environment, well lit with your friends, right? It's that kind of special moment. So, I mean, that's what I'm thinking when you talk about the third place. I mean, that's maybe a kind of ultimate fulfillment of it. It doesn't have to be that great, perhaps, to have it be uh, like a satisfactory third space. But I don't see digital technology really being that with a with the huge caveat that, look, I don't know about you, but I'm not a gamer. Hmm. I know. I mean, clearly, a huge percentage of the population spends a lot of their time in hmm. games. And so I think that must be for serious gamers kind of a third space, right? I mean, they right. spend hours and hours a day in games. This is a huge percentage sure. of the population. I feel like we can't discount the fact that people do have that experience and it must be a comfortable place to be, right? Yeah. Or at least an addictive place to be. I don't know if there's much of a difference, but I mean, it's, it's a place people are compelled to be. And I don't know if this answers your question. I'm just kind of riffing on like, there are third places, yes. I mean, now home and work or like our home space is both, both of the first two. Mm-hmm. When the weather's warm, I mean, I don't know, the third place has just been, the third space has just been like going out and being in the park in New York, you know, or yeah. like here in Lisbon, you know, thankfully the weather is still warm. And so I can be out with, I, I just get a lot of joy from just being out with strangers and watching people and even having random interactions with strangers. And it's satisfying. It feels like, oh, we're humans. We're on this same rock hurling through space, you know, and, and it feels like there's something satisfying and calming about it, you know, like that hasn't changed. That's very, uh, very appropriate for a humanistic show. <laughs> yeah, it was true early, in the early days of, uh, COVID, well, especially during COVID when I wasn't sure, but I thought I had COVID um, because right. I had, you know, all I could do was yeah. get a virtual medical appointment. And the diagnosis was, will you have symptoms consistent with coronavirus? <laughs> so, like that was it. That was all I could do. It was at a time in New York where the tests weren't available. So, right. you know, you just had to isolate yourself. So I was in isolation yeah. for a good long time and I just desperately wanted people. So I'd found this video on YouTube that a photographer had gone around and set up a, a camera on a tripod and just took ambient footage of just people, like people watching in New York City. <laughs> It's like, show right. me, show me the people. I need to see the people. <laughs> right. So I just watched yeah. this video of people to simulate people watching. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I love that story. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we can do that. It actually reminds me because I was thinking a little bit, you know, can't help thinking of the Matrix when we think about like a fully immersive, realistic, convincing space. But there's this scene I remember in the first Matrix where I think Morpheus puts Neo in this street scene where you know, you're just surrounded by people walking by on a city street, like it's New York City. And I don't know, we're talking about simulations, we're talking yeah. about being with people, we're talking about like kind of the joy and the satisfaction and the yeah. grounding experience of being with people. So perhaps eventually we'll have that, like we'll have, you know, anytime you want, you could just be convincingly in a simulation of being on a city street. And uh, is it's I think hard it to work. believe, even for those of us, even for me, who's like, I've had amazing experiences. Yeah you know, at the bleeding edge the last five years, especially of being present in a simulation in three dimensions with other people that are represented as avatars, but we feel like we're in the same space. It's not like 
video conferencing at all, right? It really, you really feel right. embodied, even though you're just simulated by a, a non-photorealistic avatar. But even for me, having these experiences, it's still hard to imagine that matrix experience in my lifetime. It just, there's so many things that haven't even begun to be solved for, but. So uh, Lucas Glenn commented and said, simulated coffee shops. And yeah, I think that's that's the idea. Okay. I think that could be, <laughs> I think that'd be really cool. Yes. Right. <laughs> I, I'm all so for we, it. Well, we haven't, what we haven't started trying to solve for yet, I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm sure people are trying to solve for it, is like simulated coffee, right? Like, can you <laughs> yeah. give Kate O'Neill the experience of drinking coffee? <laughs> You know, <laughs> but she's not actually drinking coffee, right? Oh, she will be maybe drinking nerve, coffee. Maybe, but maybe you don't need to be, because then you could just be anywhere. I guess you can drink coffee anywhere. Coffee. <laughs> you pretty much can. It's a, it's an interesting quandary because to, to me, that is what you're right. Like when we think about immersive experience, when we think about AR, for example, most of what I think we talk about, and and it's part of what makes it so exciting, is that sort of digital layering of context and I visual yeah and that's tremendously exciting still yet to be realized fully but there is Mm -hmm. this other thing and and I think you know my silly story about watching a video of people on YouTube versus you know another thing I do from time to time is actually and I I know I'm not alone there must be people comment if this is you if you do this Um, I put on uh, ambient playlists on Spotify that are of sounds of like coffee shops and so if I want to write if I need to write like a chapter of something or whatever, and I put on my headphones and have this kind of like low, low sound of just mm-hmm. chatter in the background. And it's, it's comfort, so yeah. helpful. It's so helpful. So yeah, so yeah. I believe it, that, you know, what we're talking about, that you could create, you know, the immersive experience of being around other people that would be, it may not be convincing per se, but it would, might be sufficient, right. you know. right. And it's interesting to tie this a little bit back into retail. I mean, (laughs) one of the things that's been happening in retail for years, right, is experiential retail, right, as a phrase. So there's experiential marketing, but, you know, experiential retail is, you know, apparel, you know, or like designer clothing shops have had coffee bars or like Mm -hmm. they've had some other thing that makes them a destination and a place to go and hang out, right, while you're doing your shopping, kind of trying to make it be a third space, right? I mean, a space that you feel comfortable being in. The question is, yeah, how can this be done digitally, right? Is there something that can be offered? And again, like this, I'm really intrigued by, you know, these couple startups that I'm connected with that are working with the idea that simulating something like a showroom that you can navigate around and interact with, you know, kind of virtual, but I mean, actually human backstore associates, like, is this, is this going to do some, you know, a, scratch some of that itch, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, sort of fulfill some of that desire, like not anywhere near all of it. But it's something that we can do now that is beyond Zoom, beyond video chat, beyond everything else we have. And it's it falls well short of physical presence. But we know the physical presence right now just can't be can't be done in a satisfactory, safe way, just really indoors, right? I think yeah. it, it kind of can't. Yeah, so, it, it, it is interesting to think about something for retail that feels like it's parallel to the hybrid model for um, events. Like I'm seeing with conferences, a lot of them going to this hybrid model of they're going to still do a in-person physical thing. It's, you know, maybe there'll be a fractional audience, kind of like what Saturday Night Live is doing too, I suppose, you know, having a fractional audience that's very socially distanced and masked and everything. And then there's the MC and there's the speakers and they're there in person mostly, or maybe they're actually virtual in in some cases. 
but then they're obviously broadcasting that out to a larger audience. And so that feels like there's probably a retail parallel opportunity there too, wouldn't you think, for what you're describing as those um, those experiences that are sort of the premium or the, the in-person version that's combined with this digital integrative experience? Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, one, I'm tempted to say low tech. I mean, it's, it's high tech, but it's just, it's commonly available tech, you know, using Zoom or, or FaceTime or Skype, right, is something, is a, is a simple and the only technology needed to do what a lot of stores have done during COVID, which is, you know, where their customers expect this kind of sort of high touch store associate interaction when they come to the stores, they just create a one-on-one video call mm-hmm. And the store store associates in the store or in some beautifully appointed space that has the inventory. And so the shopper just has this one-on-one interaction over video chat or video call and kind of does that associate-assisted shopping, right? And so you have that human connection. Again, it's what we're doing now. It's nowhere near as great as sitting across the table and having coffee, but it's a lot better than, you know, a two-dimensional e-commerce style shopping experience, right? Yeah. And a lot better than not having any of these. Right? Yeah. not being able to go to the store at all. So, I mean, that kind of thing is something that it's interesting that there's not, I don't think that's happening or being offered by a lot of retailers. I think it, it could be. Well, it'd have um, to it's be obviously, a it doesn't big enough scale margin, well. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's more of a high-end sort of boutique kind of thing. But the point is, it's possible, right? And so it's just a question of, is there the financial or business motivation, right, to do it? So, so those are all such interesting provocations, and I want to, I want to bring us back to like a, a more. Uh, oh, by the way, I also want to include Nathan Bowser said, um, shared experiences are going to be big. Yeah, I think you're right, right? Like, I think shared, like immersive kind of experiences. That seems like, I think we're saying like the gaming environments are full of them, but huge, there huge, are. Huge. There are a few, I think, outside of the gaming context that, mm-hmm. that are, you know, that are nearly as immersive or shared. One that's super interesting that not everybody, maybe not everyone has heard of yet is, um, so if you use Snapchat or if you follow what they do, I mean, they are really on the leading edge of augmented reality for your mobile device. And obviously have a much smaller user base than leading social networks, but they're doing super interesting things that were kind of first with face filters, first with this feature they called landmarkers a few years ago, where you could point your Snapchat camera at the Flatiron building in, building in Manhattan or certain other kinds of landmarks. And then it would recognize the building and then you could augment it, you know, like you augment your face, you know, with a face filter. They rolled out last week, I think, on Carnaby Street, I think it is in London, this ability to do shared sort of like paint splatter under your control within Snapchat of the buildings in this pedestrian mall. So not only can you virtually paint these buildings, but you can see what other people who are there are painting on these buildings as well. So it's like a shared augmented experience or layer that's collaboratively created with all the people who are there in that physical space. And each person could see it from their angle as they look at you know the buildings through their Snapchat app on their device, right? So it's a kind of shared, it's the conversion or the convergence, I guess, of shared experiences and augmented reality, right? So I don't know if this is what Nathan was talking about, but I mean, it's one way to share. I mean, people are physically together in this physical space and they're sharing in this virtual experience as well. So it's really interesting. It's kind of yeah, layering that. It's like a less gross version of a gum wall. Or a food fight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like this. 
exactly. Yes. Uh, Nathan also says Lowe's and Best Buy are do are working in this space, and I assume he means you know that kind of integrated third space sort of um, type of thing. Nathan commented if you if you want to clarify, you know which which space specifically, because we covered a lot of different ground, but maybe you know specifically what he's referring to. With Best Buy and Lowe's, I mean, I think the I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to, it's but okay. I mean, what it what it reminds me of is just. Um, you know, one of the points I think that we make in another article about, you know, what's in store for the store on near future of retail, which is that given all of this, right, and this is true a year ago, when we wrote this article, and even more so in COVID, like stores have to really think, and I think retailers and really anybody who's running a business has to really think like what absolutely requires physical presence mm-hmm. in order to sort of fulfill on the value of of whatever it is we're offering, right? And what can actually, what can possibly be rethought, reconfigured, re-engineered to be delivered at a distance, right? And this is how restaurants are surviving via delivery, you know, those that are, and it's not that this is a great solution, but I mean, some of them are surviving. This is how retailers that had invested in direct-to-consumer are surviving, you know, during COVID. Some of them are even thriving because they're totally optimized for just Mm. getting their product directly via shipping, you know, to their customers. And they just don't rely on having a physical space that customers can go to. Mm -hmm. But so that so that trend, I think, is really yeah, important and powerful just to, as a framing, right? Like what can be done if, you know, if we're thinking about as, as we start to close, right? Like what are the things that retailers or other business leaders can can use to sort of frame or unpack or like discover changes they could make to actually solve for the current moment and what's emerging? Look carefully and critically at what could possibly be done to change aspects of your business and how it how it works so that it doesn't rely on physical proximity, either of like your employees with each other, your employees or your business with the customers, et cetera. Right? Yeah. Uh, Nathan, by the way, clarifies he meant the retail consultation through interactive video tools. So oh, right. interesting yes. to see yes. that playing out uh, for for those retailers he mentioned. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you um, some sort of broad, big picture uh, questions as we close out. And I wondered, you know, what, what technologies you see on the horizon that seem like a boost to humanity in general for you? Yeah, a boost to humanity. You know, this has been said countless times, but, you know, I think technologies in themselves are, I don't know that they're boosts to humanity, honestly. I think, (laughs) I mean, I can tell you the ones I'm most excited about. I think, frankly, you know, of the last few months, I'm most excited about so many of us waking up, you know, awakening to the importance of including Mm -hmm everybody in the conversations around the kind of future we're, we're creating for humanity and, and, and for the, you know, kind of alignment of humanity with technology, which I know is at the center of the work that you do, Kate. And um, I don't know, I feel like we've been, we're being pushed and we're pushing each other to kind of bring everybody to the table. Again, it's not necessarily a problem of the, of the technology. It's the problem of the humans that are sort of feeding it incorrectly. They're being fed data that is, say, overwhelmingly of white faces, you know, and so they don't recognize dark skin faces, you know. I will give you a, a more straightforward answer to your question. I'm, you know, and this is to, to reiterate, I guess, I mean, I, I'm really excited about technology that can actually solve for distance, like help us feel more present with each other across distance. And, you know, it's amazing, like, and, and the two sides of this coin, it's amazing that we can do what we're doing now, where we can feel somewhat present, you know, with each other through video calls. 
imagine if we didn't have this technology and we had to go through the past year, you know, or seven months of COVID, you know, without being able to see each other in real time. I mean, I think it would have been much more sad, much more lonely, right? Yeah, for sure. But I think we can we can do a lot better than this, right? Which is, and there, there's a lot of emerging holographic co-presence and augmented reality and, and being in other physical spaces, simulated spaces, you know, on your mobile device. One particular thing that I'm sure anybody paying attention to technology this week uh, heard is Apple's announcement that this LiDAR technology is now part of their iPhone Pro line. Mm -hmm which for the uninitiated LiDAR is a technology like radar, but it uses light. It makes it so that a device with that capability can create a much higher resolution, regardless of lighting conditions, of the physical environment that it's in when the LiDAR camera is pointed at the space. So what it means is that, I mean, and Apple talks about it, it does have a lot of benefits for photography, but it also has benefits for augmented reality and making AR much, much easier to use, less laggy, more precise, more believable. And so to the extent that AR helps with solving for distance, I'm excited about that. I think for many people, it was a solution in want of a problem when it was introduced. But I, I think if you look at it from the lens of, you know, what it's going to do for augmented reality, potentially, it, it does seem like it could be a thrilling advance. I think six months from now, certainly 12 months from now, we'll see, like, you know, what the developer community can make it do. Yeah. You know? I'm excited about it. I've got people who I, I know who are working on it already. So, um, cool. yeah. All right. Watch this space. I really want to uh, spend another like half hour in conversation, at least another yeah. hour, maybe. Uh, and this is usually at the point in our, our coffee conversations where I go like, do you have a hard stop right now? <laughs> but uh, but I exactly. guess for our, our listeners, we should probably call it. And I want to make sure that people know how they can find and follow you and your work online. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again, Kate, for making the time. And thanks to everybody who tuned in and is watching this later. Um, readingfutures.com is a great place to learn about near future framework um, and get in touch with me. You can use the contact form there. You can feel free to connect uh, with me on LinkedIn and definitely check out nearfutureofretail.com, which, as Kate said, is a, a Medium publication. Um, it's kind of a multi-user blog, but Medium does a good job of making it feel like a bit of a magazine, you know. So those are really the three areas that I would that I would suggest. Um, follow me on LinkedIn. As you mentioned, that's, that's kind of my primary outlet for yeah. near-daily near kind of perspectives on things. Great stuff. I mean, I know uh, anybody who's interested in this topic, you really should be following Neil. His, his thoughts are second to none. So thank you, Neil, for joining us all the way from Lisbon and for thank making you. the time. <laughs> it was wonderful to see your face and talk with you. I'm sure we'll be catching up again soon. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, awesome. Thanks again, Kate. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes. Or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.